hello, good evening. Um, Olivia's here and I'm here. We're both here. Hello, everyone. Seven o'clock. It's time. It's that time of the week where I will be doing my thing. Uh, if you've got questions, then please chip in by all means. And uh, if you haven't got questions, we've got some pre-scheduled ones. And yes, Olivia, we've got a lot. We've got 14, 14 questions. So uh, that is uh, great. Looking forward to that. And if uh, if anything else comes up during the time, I'll be happy to answer those. The more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. I'm Jonathan Steino, consultant plastic surgeon, and I uh, put this out as a podcast every week um, called the Steino Clinic. So please um, do you subscribe. Yeah, you do subscribe to podcasts. So please subscribe to my podcast and my YouTube channel as well. I think we put this on YouTube and I think we chunk it up as well. So each, you know, questions, if there's a relevant question, then we can just put that as a little snippet on YouTube. So uh, that's that's me. Um, so we got some questions here. Uh, it's good to see you. Yeah, thank you, Olivia. Nice to see you too. Um, we're going to kick off with this question here. Uh, I watch your YouTube. That's, look at that. that's what we like. And wanted to ask if you have a donut lift with implants. Is there a limitation on an implant size? Um, ooh, uh, not really. Well, yeah, well, there's always, an there's always a limitation on implant size because of the dimensions of your frame and your chest, um, particularly the width. The width is the probably I would say the most important dimension that we need to respect when choosing an implant. So that will limit the, the volume of implant you have. The width of your chest will limit the width of the implant that you can have. And then once you've got the width of the implant, then you can get different shapes and profiles. So um, there's that. So there, there is a physical uh, uh, limitation on the dimensions of the implant you can have regardless of the lift. The fact that you're having a lift means that you have got to be a bit more careful in terms of wound healing, because one of the risks of having a lift and implants is you can get wound healing problems. And if you get wound healing problems when you've got an implant in, if you get a bit of infection, then the implant needs to be removed. Now, I've got to say a donut lift has got less uh, of a risk in a way because there's less scarring, just a lift, uh, just a scar around the nipple, which is good. Uh, the other types of lifts have either a scar in the nipple and a a vertical scar which is the lollipop lift or a lollipop plus a horizontal scar which is the inverted t or anchor so um the other types of lift have got more scarring and whenever you've got a junction of scarring there's more risk of wound healing problems so that's a good thing about the lollipop about the donut a bad thing about the donut is that you have to ruck in the skin which you don't have to do with the other types of lift because you're making a big circle into a small circle and so you can get healing problems there um but bottom line you've got to be a bit careful with combining a lift and implants because there could be healing problems and infection and uh, that would potentially mean the lift the implant need to be removed but in terms of limitation on size you know the question sort of may be asking if you weren't having the donut lift then would you be able to have a bigger implant no you, you could have the same size implant regardless of whether or not you're having a lift but you just got to be a bit careful about um, wound healing problems with the lift. So, yeah. So, yeah, there, there's, well, I won't say there's no limitation on size. It's not, no extra limitation on size due to the low donut lift. There is a limitation of size anyway on everybody because of the dimensions. 
what we got going on here? Natalie, is that clapping? I think that's clapping. I know this being a tiny frame, you gave the best advice. Glad I listened. Oh, there you go. Look at that. We've got a live comment backing me up on that. Thanks, Natalie. Yeah, you've got to be really careful because people come in and say, I've been on the internet and I want a 300cc implant or something. And that might suit somebody else, but it might not suit you. So you've got to look at the dimensions that, uh, that you have and uh, choose an implant that fits your frame. And that's what it's all about. That's why a consultation is important. And we can we can be we're limited as to how much information we can give on the Internet. People put on these forums saying, you know, what's implants right for me? Should I have this implant or that implant? It's really hard to say without measuring your dimensions and um, looking at what sort of what you want to achieve, the shape of your breast, etc. So Natalie is saying hi and JJ is saying hi right back. There you go. Hi, Natalie. Um, right. Um, this is a big one. Don't know. <clears throat> How do implant brands such as Mentor, Nago, Motiva differ, differ? I think that is um, a really good question. I can imagine if I wanted implants, um, I would want to know that answer to that question too, because there are quite a lot of different makes of implants and it can be a bit daunting. I've just been to the meeting, the BARPS meeting, and there's all these implant manufacturers there with their stands trying to say that they're the best or, you know, why their implants so good. Um, do you know what? I I think um, they, they do differ. No question about it. They do differ. But I don't think personally, personally, I don't think you need to worry too much about it as long as you go with one of the big reputable companies um, with a sort of track record. Um, well, I say that, but then Allegan had the thing, didn't they, recently? I mean, I, I think, well, I'll tell you how they differ, but the, the, <laughs> the main thing I'd like to say is that you're not going to notice by looking whether someone's got Nagor or Mentor or Motiva or a certain make of implant in. You can't tell by looking. So the look is not really going to, the not, look is not going to differ. The reason to choose a certain make is for me, I, I, to be honest, I usually just use the make that I've been using for many years. I use Nagor implants because I've been using it for many years. I know the range. I know the, I know the, 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 the catalog. So it's just easy for me. But I always say to people, I'm not tied to any manufacturer. So if you want a certain manufacturer, that's fine. As long as the hospital can get it, we, we can use that implant. So if you want a mentor implant or whatever, we can we can use that implant. Um, the, the, the main ways they differ, they differ in the way they do their texturing. So there's obviously textured and smooth implants. So there's different texturing and different levels of texturing and there's so they used to be smooth and, and textured nowadays what with alcl which seems to be associated with the texturing of the implants they're bringing out new ranges which are sort of less textured so they're not quite smooth but they're not as rough as classical textured um, um nano textured they're called sort of they're just sort of slightly rough um trying to be more like smooth implants um, but a lot of companies now make these nano texturing um, texturing textured implants 
uh, they also the other big way they differ is in the warranty the warranty is different between different implants and that is a minefield in itself so they pretty much most of them i don't really know about motiva motiva are a bit newer don't really know about motiva that much i know mentor and nagor uh, polytech those are the, the ones that i'm familiar with but um the the warranty broadly speaking is different between different companies most of them certainly the ones that we tend to use commonly have got a warranty against rupture lifetime warranty against rupture that's sort of that's i wouldn't say standard but that's quite common so you've got to be a bit careful if someone says oh these implants got life lifetime warranty you don't have to worry about it it's absolutely fine because that might just be a lifetime warranty against rupture which rupture can happen but it's less common than capsular contracture so that's the other problem so some implants will cover capsular contracture or some warranties will cover capsular contracture some won't and some will maybe cover capsular contracture for a limited period of time so that's the first thing you've got to look at in the warranty the other thing with the warranty is some will cover you having the opposite implant changed so if you have a problem with one implant if you've had the implant we've got this at the moment you've got an implant who's been in 10 15 years and they say oh yeah we'll give you a new implant you're going to be like yeah but i want them both changed because i don't want to have a 15 i'm not going to leave my 15 year old implant in so some will cover both implants some won't some will cover a size change some won't um you know some will just give you the same implant that you've got so uh, oh yeah and some will give you money some will give you money towards the hospital costs um and some won't so those are the differences in terms of uh warranty um and uh the uh, so basically warranty and texturing i guess so the these nano textured ones have been brought in uh, not sure how to feel about the nano texturing myself um well i do know how i feel about it i mean i think there's smooth and there's textured and textured is better than smooth for certain reasons capsular contracture stability um smooth is better than uh, textured for some reasons mainly alcl uh, alcl a lot less likely with smooth so there's good things and bad things about both they've made the nano texturing trying to make it a best of both. i think they're trying to imply it's going to be a best of both worlds but it could also be thought of as a you know worst of both worlds if the texturing is good then surely less texturing is less good if the smooth is good surely a bit rough is less good so that makes sense so i i don't know about the nano texture thing but um that's what it is so yeah texturing might be different the way they texture the implants can be different but as i say as a patient i wouldn't worry about that um the way they make the implants might be different uh so it's mainly the warranty and the texturing god i answered that very well I, it's probably live if i if i if i could do that again i'd probably do that again but anyway we're in we're in it now there's no turning back it's out there it's out there i've let it go so that was the answer to that question oh dear oh dear oh dear olivia saying can't be a good consultation olivia i'm 100 with you on that one it says hello and so does amanda lou hello everyone nice to hear and see you could argue i can't hear you dear oh dear right <laughs> can't see you either but anyway nice to see your comments that's what it's nice to see thank you for commenting um right let's see if we can do better on this one come on come on man surely you can answer this one better than that last one right why does the price of cyst removal differ in price in <laughs> price written twice oh who writes these who writes these oh 
Why does the price of cyst remover differ in different clinics? We'll just say that, shall we? Um, yeah, I mean, we can open that up, can't we? To cyst removal, mole removal, breast augmentation, probably. Um, well, not probably. There is, isn't it? But cyst removal, definitely, and mole removal, I think the price does differ. I know the price does differ, and I can tell you why. For several reasons. Um, one reason, I've, got, I've done a blog post about this, haven't I? Cost of mole removal. Yeah, I've done a blog. Uh, one reason. Um, who is the practitioner, if you like? So particularly with cysts and moles, lots of people will offer the service. Some will be surgical, surgically trained. Some won't be surgical, surgically trained. You will get um, different levels of training. Um, you get people who've got no surgical training at all doing it. GPs, for instance, dermatologists, although dermatologists have done a lot of skin uh, surgery. They do do skin surgery, but it's not a surgical special per se. So certainly if you had a bigger lesion um, in a difficult area of your face, maybe a person who's surgically trained would be better, uh, i.e. a surgeon, which could be a plastic surgeon, a general surgeon, ENT surgeon. There's lots of different types of surgeons that do it. Um, so the training and the qualifications of the, of the practitioner will differ in different clinics. The facilities of the clinics will differ. Now, on one extreme, you've got the hospitals uh, where they have fully operating, fully fledged operating lists, uh, operating theatres. And you may end up paying for an operating theatre if you don't need. So that's why you often find the hospitals are very expensive for these things um, because the, the operating theatre could be used to do open heart surgery or spine surgery or, you know, big major operations so it's an expensive theater to run so those costs are passed on um whereas something like this molar assist doesn't have to be performed in a in a big um theater it can be performed in a smaller local anesthetic theater but again there's different levels of facility there where people do it i mean you could potentially do it in a in a consulting room in a in a gp practice um so the higher level of of um cleanliness and infection control or what have you the more overhead in the facility so i don't think you need to go to a hot well it's a hospital there's nothing bad about it. it's good to go to a hospital for it if, if you want but you might pay more for it so maybe a clinic um makes it sound like i'm i'm plugging my own thing there doesn't it because i've got a clinic but anyway <laughs> hostels are good as well but the, the hostels are very expensive but a clinic with an operating suite i don't know like maybe mine <laughs> Oh dear, I'm not trying to plug myself, but you know, anyway, but you want an operating, you know, it's nice to have an operating room rather than doing it in a consulting room, unless it's a small thing, but you know, the CQC sort of, did they say that to us? Maybe they didn't say that to us, but we said we wouldn't really, we're not doing, we don't really do anything in the consulting rooms. We do everything in the, in the operating room because it's got a special floor and special lighting and special airflow and stuff like that. Um, sterility and things. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know where, what, whether a cheaper clinic would have less facilities. I don't even know, to be honest with you. I should go and have a look at them. But uh, those are the things I'd be looking for. Maybe a, a dedicated uh, operating room, level of the surgeon, uh, of uh, expertise. And finally, uh, histology is another big area that we, um, we have. It's a big cost. So uh, I hear about people doing moles and cysts for like 300 pounds and I heard someone the other day, 250 pounds for a, for a cyst. Now, 
histology for us is about 100 and it's nearly 150 pounds. I think it's 120 or 130 pounds for histology. That's just histology. Never mind the packs that we open, the equipment that we use. We often use bipolar diathermy, which is a little machine, you know, a little buzzy machine. That's a disposable thing. That's 20 pounds. The kit, the nurse, the surgery, the overhead, the um, consumables. So there is a lot of costs involved. Um, and histology is a big one. Now, some places might not do histology. Now, you might not need histology, which will be, which is good. But um, certainly, um, if you did want histology, if you did want them to look at it under a microscope to give you then a report to say what it was, so it was a sebaceous cyst or a, you know, benign mole, then that is expensive. So that's another differentiator. You've got to look and see if histology is included or not. So I think those are the three, three areas really: the training and the qualification of the practitioner the um, facilities, the, the level of facilities you are being operated on, in, and uh, whether or not histology is involved. So, um, so, <laughs> um, Olivia says you're doing great. Thanks, Olivia, for that. Um, thanks for that support. Um, Olivia had a cyst done in a clinic under local, guys. So there you go. Um, I have no problem with you advertising skills. <laughs> I wasn't, oh dear, yeah, I wasn't trying to, I'm not, yeah. Uh, right, let's move on. Let's move on. Next one. Next. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all. Um, does an inner thigh lift also help to tighten the outer thigh? I think I've lost more weight and I'm shriveling daily. Okay. Um, I th I've got to, I always try and be really careful in what I sort of promise, uh, or at least maybe not, maybe promise is a strong word, what I you know, say can be achieved with with surgery, and um, an inner thigh lift. Really, the focus of the pull and the and the sort of epicenter of the pull and the tightening is the inner thigh. To be honest with you, the outer thigh lift often doesn't have as much lax skin as the inner thigh. That's why the outer thigh you can often treat with liposuction. It doesn't sound like you need liposuction if you if you're losing weight. But um, liposuction is often good for the outer thigh because it's often not a, a, a skin problem as much as it is in the inner thigh. The laxity of the skin is less with the inner thigh. So when you lose weight, you get this sort of redundant skin, whereas the outer, outer thigh tends to recoil better. So having sort of laxity in the outer thigh is, less, is usually less of a problem. And really the pull of an inner thigh lift is in the inner thigh. So I wouldn't say that it will have a dramatic effect on the outer thigh the sort of vector of pull the the amount of pull that is going to translate to the outer thigh is going to be less once you've you know that the focus is on the inner thigh if you maybe pinch yourself pinch your inner thigh yourself and then feel how taut the outer thigh gets i i, I don't think it will give a sustained significant tightening of the outer thigh i don't think i think if you um, and, and one of these things is all about being prepared for what could be achieved with surgery so you can make an informed decision whether to have it or not. So it's great to ask these sorts of questions because you've got to be thinking, hold on a minute, I really don't like my outer thigh. I'm not going to be happy if it doesn't do anything to my outer thigh. And then maybe you need to think about something else for that. Um, but I think um, an inner thigh lift would really be focusing on tightening up that skin on the inner thigh. And it may not give a significant difference to your outer thigh. To be to be brutally honest, to be frank, um, if you, if you don't mind me being frank for a, for a moment there, 
after weight loss, what can be done to improve excess skin around the buttocks? A Brazilian butt lift can't be done in the UK and is dangerous procedure. But after a big weight loss, there's loose skin and sagging on the bum. What can be done to improve it? Um, good question. Tricky, isn't it? When we say, oh, we're not going to do this surgery. And they're like, what are we going to do? We had a big discussion about it at the Barts meeting. Like, oh, you know, what, what are we going to do if we say we're not going to do these uh, Brazilian butt lifts? Now, I've got to say, this um, has never really been my area, to be honest with you. So there was a, a debate. There was a discussion. And I've got a view on it, but I didn't really want to put too much of my oar in because it's not really my specialty. It's not really my um, field of interest. Uh, the, the contouring of the buttock. It is a sort of specialist thing in its own right. Um, so if you do, and I, and I and it really would have to be significant weight loss. If you've got a significant weight loss and you've got a significant uh, uh, deflated buttock, I guess, broadly speaking, two options. Uh, in the absence of um, giving volume to it, in the absence of um, uh building it up which is the fat grafting which is all the which is the brazilian butt lift which everyone's up in arms about and implants which also have got their issues although some people say oh they're great um, but if you're not going to give volume to the buttocks to fill that empty skin the other option is to tighten the skin is to remove the skin and if you tighten and remove the skin then you're left with a, uh, a scar in the buttock crease um, and a bit like the breast you have to make a nice buttock crease it's a it's a very important landmark where the, the posterior thigh meets the buttock. It's a it's a sort of crisp landmark, uh, like the inframammary fold of the breast, which is an important landmark to get right. And it's not a great place for a scar. Can you imagine it? Sitting, you know, you're sitting on it all the time. So it's not a great place for a scar. Potential for wound healing. I'm going to talk about that in a minute with the brachioplasty question. But it's not a not a really it, you know it's a good place in terms of the aesthetics of it because it heals well. But it's a difficult place to get healed, so that's not a great. Um, it's not a great operation. Uh, so I said there's two options. So in the absence of adding volume to the to the buttock, you either take the skin away, which is the um, the thing that I'm talking about with the scar, or you accept it and you just say, look, you know, I have a big hoo ha about the buttock lift. It may not be around all the time. The the um, band they may well say oh look you know there are a lot of re sort of research if you like about where we should be injecting the fat to stay safe and how the, all the problems occurred um, and whether there's things we can do certainly the people who do it a lot say that there are things we can do to make it a safe procedure um, and I think the UK um, the standpoint is a bit like uh, unsure about it still but I think that it may well be something that is offered, at, you know, at some point. So maybe to sort of, you know, hang on in there. But uh, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. And I take your point that it is tricky to know what to do in terms of uh, contouring the buttock is a is a difficult one at this uh, at this point in time. And we and we, yes, Olivia, we may have to just accept it. I think that's that's a definite um possibility and olivia wouldn't have the brazilian no i no uh i don't think i would I, olivia uh maybe i'm not the target market for it anyway can anesthesia have an effect on the tongue how can one damage the 
tongue during anesthesia. I've got a red mark that's not really changing. Are we worried? Uh, okay, so, um, yes. I mean, obviously, when you have an anesthetic, you, things go in your mouth. There's a, there's, well, there's two types of tubes you can have. You can have a laryngeal mask, which is a, a, a floppy thing that goes in your mouth, or you can have an endotracheal tube, which is a, a, a more secure way of securing your air, airway. And when you do the endotracheal tube, they put a metal thing called a laryngoscope in your mouth to, to open up your airway so they can put, put this tube down. And that metal thing can, can potentially could potentially damage your tongue, uh, bruise your tongue, or, or uh, damage your tongue, or your teeth. You know, the anesthetists are very worried about your teeth. So yes, totally um, not outside the realms of possibility that your tongue could be damaged with uh, uh, with anaesthesia. And if you've got a red mark, and also, oh, is it painful? It doesn't say whether it's painful, but it, if you know if it's painful, then. Um, it probably is something, and you just had surgery, then it's probably something to do with the surgery. I wouldn't necessarily think it's anything to worry about. I think you, um, I said you've seen the dentist. Okay. Well, you know, you could mention it to your surgeon and certainly it's something as a surgeon, as a, as a, uh, you know, we would probably want to know just because if, you know, if the anesthetist needs to know if, if there's been something like that, some bruising, which we wouldn't expect. So you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't expect to have a damaged tongue so we might something we'd want to know to flag up and say look guys was there something we did were we a bit rough with the putting this uh putting the tube in or was there a problem there what what's going on because we shouldn't really be causing bruising in areas like that but it's something that could potentially happen so i wouldn't worry about it as a bottom line too much and hopefully it'll get better as quickly as it came squats one word comment squats that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm planning on doing, Olivia. I'm doing the squats. I'm not doing the Brazilian butt lift. Um, yeah, I'm with you on that one. This is a good one. Can't believe we haven't had this one before. I don't think we have had it before. Um, what's the typical time between first consultation and surgery? So um, there's, a, there's a minimum time. Well, hold on a minute. Depends on, what's, depends on what operation it is. Because if it's like a minor operation, like a mole or a cyst or a you know, local anesthetic case, we actually do it on the same day as a consultation. It's like a see and treat clinic. Because often people know they've got a mole or a cyst that they want to have removed. So we do offer a see and treat clinic for those things uh, where you have it done on the same time as consultation. I'm assuming this question is talking about more of the bigger things like the tummy tucks and the breast augmentations, breast reductions, the bigger operations that are done in the hospital. Uh, and for those operations, there's a two-week cooling off period, a bit like when you get a credit card. So we can't do it within two weeks. Um, so I guess that's the minimum time. Uh, but it also depends on the schedule and your life and things. And I probably wouldn't recommend having it within two weeks. I think you need to give yourself some time to have a think about things, particularly if it's a first consultation, you know. So, you know, you might have been to lots of consultations with other people. But, you know, if it is your first one, you need to give yourself plenty of time. I would say the typical time is a couple of months. I would say it's typical two months is sort of two two to three months is sort of normal obviously we've got to look at the our waiting list as well um but it can be years literally years in fact i operate on someone yeah no when was it today yeah yesterday who i saw years ago absolutely you know first first saw her years ago and then saw her again you know a few months ago so that that and that happens you know not infrequently you see someone and 
you know, they life gets in the way. They might have children. They might put on weight. They might not not be able to lose the weight they wanted to lose or whatever. And then years later, they come back and they say, right, I'm ready for surgery now. So there's no sort of upper time limit. Lower time limit is two weeks. Classic would be two months, I would say, is the sort of standard. Um, hold on a minute. What's going on here? Uh, Olivia, me too, though not started yet. Oh, yeah, I've not started yet either. The squats, I think. Uh, me neither. I've got a bum like two empty pit of breads. Not a good look. Thanks. Good, good, um, good description there, Corinna. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think we just have to stick with our pit of breads at the moment, Corinna. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe we've got a bit of space there. Do a bit, do a bit of squats after the after this gets started. No time like the present. Um, do you have any credit options for surgery? Yes, we do. So the surgery that we do in the hospitals, um, the the um, hospital offers 0% finance for a year. One's 10 months, I think one's a year. Some people say, oh, can I extend it? Um, I don't think, I, well, actually, I don't think they, well, they certainly won't extend the 0%. Obviously, if you extend it, then you're going to have to pay a, pay a charge on that. But if it was me, and I should have a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor. Please don't take financial advice from me. I'm the, I'm the last person you want to take financial advice from. But if it was me, and you, even if you've got the money, I would say if they're doing 0% finance, why don't you do it on 0% finance? And, oh yeah, if you've got the money, that's fine. Do it on 0% and then pay it off at the end. Or, or um, oh, I was going to say, yeah, I don't know how the 0% finance works. Actually, I haven't thought this through. I don't know how the 0% finance works. Presumably, they divide it by 10. So I was going to say, at the end of the 12 months, take a loan for what's left. But maybe there's nothing left. Maybe they just divide it by 12. Hmm. That doesn't work. Yeah, anyway, they do do um, they do do 0% finance, the hospitals, both of them. And it is 12 months or 10 months. Ooh, uh, what's going on, Right, right, uh, start in a minute, yeah, go for it, Olivia, well, I'm going to start in a minute as well. Right, I've been advised that liposuction will get rid of one of my chins. Will I have excess skin there? How, how, oh, sorry, how does it work? Will I have excess skin there? So, yes. So the thing about liposuction, and liposuction is fantastic I was, it's one of my favorite things to do i don't do it very often though uh, i was just doing it yesterday and i just really do enjoy doing liposuction but one of the limitations of liposuction is that it only removes fat and it doesn't remove skin and so there are certain areas where liposuction is really good outer thigh as i said earlier hips flanks chest bra roll sort of lateral chest wall um, certain areas where it's not quite so good inner thigh central abdomen arms um, because the skin doesn't recoil quite so well so that is a limitation of liposuction it doesn't remove skin you're relying on that skin to recoil so it depends on how much skin you've got on your chin so if it is a common place to have liposuction the chin i, I don't do this disclaimer i don't do this sort of stuff uh, but I can give you broad advice. So um, it is a common place for uh, to have liposuction on your chin, and often the skin will recoil by getting rid of the thormus there and the and the fat in that, that area, and that will get rid of your chin, your your extra chin. 
if you have a lot of skin there, if you have very crepey skin, sort of thin skin, black skin, if you have not really looked after your skin, so if you're a smoker, if you have a lot of sun exposure, then there might be a worry that that skin won't recoil. Um, but I would say the first, the sort of mainstay of, of treatment is to get rid of that light, that uh, fat with liposuction because the beauty of liposuction is the scarring is, is, uh, is, is hidden, really. Um, you can't really see the scar. Once you start cutting out skin, then you start getting into scars. And, you know, you've got the chin there. It's quite hard to hide scars. You can make a scar here to hide it. Probably the best thing is to have a sort of facelift and pull the scar up into your neck, uh, up into behind your ear. And that will sort of tighten the skin of your face and your neck and hide the scar up here. But then obviously that's quite a big operation, a facelift. You might not be there yet. But this is something where you need to talk to your surgeon. Uh, and if they feel, looks like they do feel that liposuction might help, then yes, it might help. But you have to be, like I said earlier, um, a, a, aware of the limitations of it so that you can decide whether it's um, it's right for you and whether it's going to give you the result that you want, which is after all what we're all are always after. Right, another one. Oh, look, got another facial one here. Since rhinoplasty 18 months ago, my nose is running non-stop. Can anything be done about this? Um, right, well, this is, I should have looked this one up. This is um, a bit out, out of my, um, out of my uh, expertise. Rhinoplasty is not something that I do, but in general terms, the rose constantly running is, is a sign of sort of inflammation. You know, there's something there causing a bit of inflammation. Your, your nose produces mucus, produces fluid normally, um, and it normally sort of runs and goes down the back of your throat and you don't even notice it. But if there's more of it than normal, you might notice it. And it can run out here or it can run down the back of your throat, post-nasal drip it's called, but you, you can get a sense of more, you know, your nose running more due to inflammation and certainly surgery is an inflammatory process so surgery makes things inflamed so it's not unusual to get um, this after surgery I've got to be honest 18 months is a long time so I would be thinking mm, is that um, normal um, number one number one thing is is this normal is this okay is there a problem is there a foreign body in your nose or is there a I don't know reason for, for for this you know is there a stitch there or something i don't know is there something that's causing inflammation that's causing it to run more that's your number one thing your number two thing can anything be done about it well obviously look for an underlying cause and treat the cause uh, but if there isn't there are things that you can do to dry up your secretions um there are medication and sprays and what have you, you can have to to dry up the secretions but I, I guess if it was me the first thing i'd be thinking 18 months post-surgery is there something there that uh, we need to be looking at so I would go back to your surgeon. That's my advice on that one. I, I would say it's not um, it's not normal and it wouldn't be something you'd want to get looked at, really. This is a good one. This is a good one. I mean, not that the, the others, they're, they're all good, all right? They're all good. And this is just amongst the good ones. This is one of the good ones, one of the many. So um, do you really lose volume by going under the muscle? I want the look of 250cc sizes, but, a, but our size is a true reflection of what size I will be after surgery. Now, that is a good question right there. That's a good one. Whew, that is a good one. 
Um, you know what? It is hard choosing implants. There is no really good specific way that you can tell how everything's going to react, how your body's going to react, how your scar, scar tissues are going to, how your tissues are going to fall. So it is a difficult process to go through. And I don't normally tell people to adjust for having them under or over the muscle. People do say that having them under the muscle squashes it a bit, but I don't think it's to the extent that I would therefore choose a bigger implant. I think it's hard enough choosing an implant without putting that as an extra level of, uh, of complexity. I think you have to choose an implant based on dimensions. The dimensions are really important. So whilst the sizes are important, what I go in is I go dimensions first. I measure the dimensions of your chest first. And that then straight away gives you a certain group of implants that you will be able to have. You can't have any implants you want. Once you've got the dimensions of your chest, you have to respect that. Secondly, the shape and the profile. Teardrop, round, um, high profile, low profile, moderate profile. Um, extra high profile, whatever. So look at the photos, different profiles, get an idea of what sort of profile that you would like that will complement the shape of your breast because you are going to add the, the implant to your breast. Once you've got a shape and a profile that you want, the width of your breast is set. There'll be a couple of implants that will fit your frame. There won't be a wide variation. So I wouldn't say necessarily, I wouldn't really go for a bigger one um, to to because uh, you're worried about going under the muscle the sizes is really something to get an idea of what sort of volume once you've chosen the shape and the profile so the shape and the profile is more important than the sizes although everybody worries about the sizes so what i would be saying to you is look choose a shape and profile the width of your set, chest is set and then you've got to hope it matches about the size or the type 250 sizer and if there's one a little bit bigger, you might be far more comfortable going with that one because it's if as long as it still fits within the remit of your frame. If it means changing profile, if you like the moderate profile, for instance, and the moderate profile implant is 230 or 220 or something, and the high profile implant is 270, and you're worried, you think, hold on a minute, I'm going under the muscle, maybe I should have the high profile because it's going to squish it a bit. I would be worried about doing that. I would be worried about changing profiles to suit this question about the, the the muscle i think if you were going from a if your choice was between a 220 and a 250 moderate profile both the same profile and you like the moderate profile then maybe you say oh well i'll go for the 250 because i'm worried the muscle's going to squish it but i wouldn't go for a higher profile to counter effect affect this perceived um action of the muscle i hope that makes sense so i would stick with the shape and the profile that's my trident approach Yeah. Dimensions first, shape and profile second, volume third, in that order of, uh, of importance. Don't get too hung up on the volume. Go for the shape and the profile that you want and then choose a volume that matches the dimensions of your frame. I hope that is um, everyone answer that. OK, uh, what we got here? Olivia's in. Olivia is in a question. Is hippie scrub wash harsh on your skin? I've stopped wearing my compression. I've not put the antibiotic cream on today. Shall I also stop the hippie scrub wash in the morning? My arm rash is a bit better, but hasn't gone around brachioplasty wounds. Um, 
yeah i mean first of all if someone has given you hibiscrub um i wouldn't want to be the one to say stop using the hibiscrub because that might be their uh, regime their post-op regime uh, but in general terms yeah hibiscrub is uh, a chlorhexidine wash which is uh, antiseptic and is very good because it's antiseptic um, but the problem with these washes and to be honest with you i got it i don't get it quite so much these days i used oh hello used to get it more when i was in the nhs and doing big lists where you're doing where you're scrubbing your hands a lot uh, where you do lots of operations uh, if you're doing sort of you know an emergency list or something where you've got lots of operations back to back and you're, you're scrubbing your hands a lot with hibiscrub it can really dry out your hands and it can really take away the oils from your hands it's quite harsh in that respect so it's good that it kills the bugs but it can dry out your skin uh, and so it's good to moisturize uh, in between um, and just you know be a bit careful um, that you don't want to think oh i'm going to scrub it and get all these bugs away because if you, especially with again, I'm not sure. I'm not suggesting you are scrubbing, but uh, if you, you know, if you are really giving it a scrub, certainly if the skin's getting excoriated, if you're getting a rash, if the rash is due to the hibiscus scrub, you know, you think, oh god, then the rash can potentially have the skin, uh, the skin can break because of the rash, and then that can be um, worse, you know, because you've got break, broken skin there, which can get bugs in and things. So the reason for using the hibiscus scrub has been sort of negated by the. Um, by the rash and the thing so getting the balance right be a bit careful but yeah stick close with your surgical team i know that might be a problem but stick close with your surgical team if you can oh there you go you see your gp on friday after work at 3 30 there you go fantastic but yeah gotta be a little bit careful with the old hibis scrub because it is quite a potent uh, antiseptic which is as i say good but it also can be a bit harsh thank you olivia nice one uh, what are the different incisions for a breast augmentation? Normally an implant for BA leaves a scar under the breast. I've heard of surgeons placing the implant through the nipple instead. Is this wrong? Is this right? Wrong. Um, so there's different incisions for breast augmentation. And there is, you're absolutely right, normally it leaves a scar under the breast, implementally fold. Uh, that's the one I usually use. And to be honest, in this country, we normally use it. I think you'll find most surgeons will um, use that most commonly. The other incisions you can have is the one you're describing, which is through the nipple, which is actually called infra areola. It's not actually through the nipple. The nipple is the bit in the middle that sticks out. So um, it's usually the U-shape of the areola, which is the pigmented area around the nipple, the sort of, red, the, the sort of brown or, or darker skin around the nipple. And you make a U-shape incision of the part, bottom border of the areola. Lovely incision, usually heals beautifully. Use it all the time for gynecomaster on men really hard to see once it's healed means no visible scarring on the breast fantastic incision the downsides of that incision is that it can interrupt the nerve supply potentially and the milk ducts potentially to the nipple because you are cutting through some of the uh, breast tissue when you're doing that incision um, so there's increased risk of nerve and uh, uh, problems with breastfeeding after it potentially a um, little bit more difficult because you're cutting through the breast tissue but nevertheless perfectly acceptable way to do the surgery uh, really look for surgeons who have you know who, who 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 do it a lot really i guess um you'll find some surgeons do it a lot and some surgeons don't america i think they do it a lot more than we do um 
doesn't mean they're right, we're wrong, or we're right, they're wrong. It's just like different. There's pros and cons. As I say, when the scar heals well, it heals fantastically. If it doesn't heal well, then you have got a scar on the front of the breast, you know, in the nipple, whereas the inflammatory scar is a little bit better hidden. Uh, the other incisions are uh, armpit transaxillary, which is even better hidden than the areola one uh, in the armpit. So that's fantastic in terms of scarring because there's absolutely no scarring at all on the on the on the breast or the chest. Problem with that is um, it's difficult to get a good cleavage. That's the main thing. That's the main reason I don't do it. It's, I, I've in my hands, I mean, some people, again, in uh, France, the overseas, they're very, I think in Europe, they tend to do it a bit more than we do. And again, if you get someone who's an expert in it and has done hundreds of cases and got great results, then that's, I can't argue with that. But um, you probably wouldn't want me doing it because I haven't done hundreds of cases. Um, I've done the inflammatory approach. That's where I get good results. I like the inflammatory approach because you've got direct access to this area here. area here you know the, the, the cleavage area which is a really important cleavage areas are really important to get those implants sitting right there and uh, particularly when it's under the muscle and if you go transaxillary if you go into the armpit it's quite a long way to get here from the armpit and you're you're blind for a lot of it you're not doing it under direct vision i worry about damaging blood vessels in that area causing hematoma um, or just not dissecting it well enough to give a nice enough oh, give a nice enough pocket give a nice enough pocket to the um, to the cleavage area so that is my worry about my worry about transaxillary but I totally understand it that uh, the scar is not on the chest and sometimes people come and say I want transaxillary because I don't want a scar there I'm like I totally get that and that is a, a totally acceptable technique but it's not you know I won't it's not my I won't do it because I just wouldn't do a good enough job because I don't do it enough um, the other one tuba t-u-b-a Bit off the wall, um, uh, trans umbilical breast augmentation. Go through your belly button. Yeah, you heard me, your belly button. So you can go through your belly button and then put an implant in the breast to give a scar in your belly button. Crazy, I know. Um, again, it's an American thing, really. It's um, because it's a saline implant that you blow up. So you put it in empty, put it up there, and then you blow it up with saline, um, which is not really something that we do here in the UK. So that's a not not an option really. Oh well, not anyone I know. Um, Olivia's going to stop the hippie scrub. Oh God! If I don't get in trouble, don't blame me, Olivia. Um, I'm just giving you my um, just giving you my take on it. I hope it'll make it all right. Um, here we go. Look at that. Question thirteen, guys. We're on question thirteen. We're going to do this. We've got fourteen questions. We're going to do this. The end's in sight. Come on, come on. Do the wounds in the armpit take longer to heal slash stay red for longer after brachioplasty if compression has also been close to the armpits? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things about plastic surgery, we're always trying to hide the scars. And certainly armpit is a good place to hide the scars, as is the groin, um, you know, as is the you know tummy tuck fold. We're always trying to hide scars in sort of uh, crevices and, uh, you know, um, places with shadow and things and the armpits are classic because it's it hides scar really well but it's just not a great place for a scar you know it's just hot it's sweaty there's movement there so it is not a good place for a scar so yes our wounds in the armpit particularly if you have a brachioplasty you often have an l um, so it goes down the arm and then l into the armpit and anytime as say there's a corner 
I send you a masturbation any time there's a corner you've got that sort of point of, of tissue which can have problems with delayed healing so yeah definitely the armpit is often a you know a, a potentially an area which can take longer to heal and the scar might be a bit more red a bit like when you do a breast reduction, uh, breast reduction or a mastopexy and down at that t-junction that doesn't heal so well but the good thing about both those is it's hidden so although it's horrible at the time if it's not healing so well the scar is hidden so even so when it does heal it's usually difficult to see so that is the, the reason we put the scar there but it can be a bit of a can be a bit of an issue if it is taking a bit longer to, to, to heal amanda says thank you for answering you're very welcome amanda thank you for asking and olivia i've got it in black and white guys there you go disclaimer she's not going to blame me if it all goes wrong when she stops using her hippie scrub um so there you go screenshot that thank you right this is a difficult one isn't it this one here the last is it the last question it's the last question yeah this just came in this evening thank you for the question last question oh god it's my ball bit there oh dear oh dear look at the state of that Woo! dear oh dear it's a shocker it's a shocker whenever i go in a lift oh god the mirrors terrible anyway professional will rise above it um my nail though so are bee light implants worth it hi there i was just wondering whether i could ask a question for the live feed my question is are bee light implants worth the extra money it's going to cost me an additional thousand pounds for bee light implants over mentor and i'm just wondering whether it's money well spent with them being 30 percent lighter question mark god dear oh dear well are bee light implants worth it? It's really hard. Are, is anything worth it? You know, what's worth? It depends on the value you put on the, on it. One of the things about bee light implants um, is they're relatively new, and I think surgeons are generally uh, anxious about new technology. I think the concept of the technology is good, and I think the concept is a no-brainer you know light do you want a lighter one or not oh well, yeah i'll have a lighter one you know the concept is is definitely a good concept i think it really comes into its own for larger sizes uh sizes sizes which for me um i don't tend to do the really large sizes personally quite so much i think the benefit is going to be less for the smaller sizes because obviously the difference in volume is going to be less um i think um is it worth the money million dollar question i don't know i mean i it's i i don't know i don't know i don't know if we've got the evidence there you know we haven't got you know i'm going to you could put one b light in one side and one standard silicone in the other side and say oh does one side feel better than the other is you would you pay you know extra it's really hard and i don't know and i've uh, and it's one of those things that maybe in 20 years time they'll all be be light and we will say god remember we used to put those heavy ones in you know um and the, the you know you say you can have a heavy one but it's going to cost you a thousand you know you're going to save yourself a thousand pounds and everyone will be going flipping out i'm not having a heavy one you know the, the, the standard ones currently silicone implants are the standard and be light and are not the standard so that is the problem i think certainly from a surgical point of view we're a bit anxious about new things about new technology and that makes us 
or I say us, I shouldn't lump everybody in, me anyway, my disclaimer, this is just my view, makes me think, mm, you know, so I am a bit, um, a bit like that. And I don't know if it's worth it. You know, um, we've got one in the clinic and say, look, that's a B light, that's a standard implant. It is lighter. Um, people can feel it like, oh, it is lighter. But when it's inside the body, I think the difference is less because it's sort of moment effect. Really trickle, tricky question. Great question. Love the question. And I am struggling to answer it because I think, you know, I, th I don't think any body, never mind any surgeon, I don't think any body will be able to answer that question with a resounding yes or no. I think it has to be. Uh, it depends on your body habitus, on your size of implant, whether that might have a more of an effect. And um, and I just don't know. They haven't been around that long, so I, I don't know. I'd be a bit knackered without your advice, JJ. My Turkish surgeon is MIA. Your advice is invaluable. Thank you. You're very welcome, Olivia. That's a nice, lasting comment. Thank you, Olivia. I will do my best to advise, but I do feel a bit awkward. I mean, I'm very happy. I don't mind who has had, uh, if you've had surgery with other people or are going to have surgery with other people, I'm very happy to give you my view, but it is just my view, and I'm very aware that I don't know everything. Nobody knows everything um, unless you get someone who's just way off and, you know, way outside the... Uh, uh, the fraternity. I think most people, most plastic surgeons, uh, will have their views, and their view, our views, might differ between us. That doesn't mean one's right or one's wrong. Often, so it's just a question of balancing up the getting as much information as you can. That's why I do this to get as much information as you can to give you as much information so that you can arm yourself and make a decision, make an informed decision about whether B light implants are worth it, where to have your cyst removed, you know, what make of implant to to have. There's no right or wrong answers. I think sometimes it'll be easier to be honest with you because I get sometimes people come to the clinic and they say, oh, I've heard these implants are the best. You know, this make of implant is the best. I'm like, well, who told you that? Who told you that your make of implants the best? It's usually someone who can only give those make of implants. They're linked to one implant manufacturer and they only use that make. So I think that's a bit disingenuous saying they're the best because you know, if they were the best, I mean, I, I use the best. The only difference is polyurethane implants. There's only one make that makes them polyurethane. So I think you could probably uh, uh, rightfully say that Polytech are the best polyurethane implants. They happen to be the only polyurethane implants. But I think for silicone implants, there's different makes and there's good and bad about all of them. Some people use these ones. Some people use those ones for different reasons. Often it's you have a as a surgeon, you have a, um, what's the word, a um, sort of well, link or a, 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 um, a um, you know, a relationship, if you like, with the company, with the manufacturer. Um, sometimes people frown on that a bit, but often surgeons have got relationships with the manufacturers because they use the implants a lot, because they think they're good implants and because they're happy with them. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, uh, but I don't think you can say one is the best, much as they would like you to say that the implant manufacturers would like you to say theirs is the best one. I don't think anyone can make that claim. I think they're all good. They've all got pros and cons, and you just have to inform yourself. And the other and the thing that I always say is the surgeon is more important. I really do think the surgeon is more important. People get hung up 
on what implants shall I have? Shall I have Nagel or Mentor or whatever, polyurethane or teardrop or round or, you know, obviously these things are important, no question about it, and you should make a judgment on it and be informed about it, but don't worry about it too much because it's not going to make a massive difference as long as you get an implant that fits your frame. The thing that's going to make a difference is how that implant is placed, where it is in, where it is placed, the, you know, the, how meticulous about the surgery, making sure that there's no um, bleeding, making sure the pocket is made right and it's not too high, not too low, not too wide. So those are the really important things. Oh, what's going on here? Amanda's off to watch Bake Off. Oh. Am I going off on one a bit? Thanks for answering, says Karina. Olivia, integrity, honesty. Look at that. Integrity. Thank you, Olivia. And Amanda's off to watch Bake Off. All right. All right, Amanda. Well, um, well, if Amanda's off, there's no point in carrying on, really, is there? Um, okay, Amanda. Well, enjoy Bake Off. Um, Olivia's off as well. Cup of tea. Right, everyone's off. Is it just me, then? All right, I'll... I'll be off as well then. Right. Um, well, thanks for coming. Thanks for a bumper crop of questions. Fabulous questions. Oh, she's back. Yeah, yeah. Look, Amanda, you said you're off to watch Bake Off. It's okay. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. Olivia said, right, guys, listen, I'm off. I suggest you go and get yourself a cup of tea, a bit of Bake Off. Um, I would do likewise. I'm not into it. I think these things have a life, a lifespan for me, the Bake Off. I think it's gone too far, personally. Um, looking for something new, really. But... Um, Amanda, you enjoy it, and I will see you same time, same place next week. Uh, and please ask questions, because I love it, and the more the barrier. And thank you all for asking some fantastic questions this week, and let's go and watch some TV. Good night. Bye.